Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. I'm okay with right. Do I need one? What are you? We're just getting started here. getting started. The grilling yeah. hasn't begun, right. Mayor Johnson. I've been waiting a long time to call you Mayor Johnson. When you say you've been waiting for a long time, um, when you like, does that is it equivalent to like how long we've been waiting for the Bulls to win another championship? <laughs> no, not that long. Okay. Uh, 1998. I, I didn't even know you in 1998, which was the last time the Bulls. I believe I met you about three years later or so at the New City Y. Yeah. That's how long I've known this man. Yeah, it's our Cabrini Green days together. Yes, I was a coach, and he was the guy at the, um, at the front desk who would tell me, take your hat off when you come into the New City Y. He's such a disrespectful <laughs> human being you are, yeah. Ben Jurassic. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for showing up, and uh, thank you, Ronnie Reese, uh, for making it happen. Give a shout-out to the uh, Ronnie spent a lot of time on the phone with me. And um, we have so many questions we want to ask you. I've got an eye on the clock. You're no longer Brandon, the guy I call up. Uh, hey, Brandon, I need a guest. Can you be here this afternoon? And, you know, those days are gone. Uh, yeah, both of us are sitting there, like, looking at your cell phone number and our phones, like, which, when, when do we press the red button? When do we text them directly? This wasn't an occasion. Well, you're the only two people in Chicago who have my cell number who think twice about texting me. So so kudos to you all, because no one else has that standard, by the way. Hey, Brampton. Um, So just the easy opening general question before I follow up with the tough one. Uh, do you still like the job 100 days in? Do you want to quit? Do you want to go back to being a Cook County Board Commissioner? <laughs> well, this is by far um, just an incredible display of 
what movement politics can yield. So let me just acknowledge the fact that I'm not here without the coalition of people who have been fighting for economic, racial, and social justice for a very long time. And I, I mean this you know, respectfully, because I know you always think that I'm digging on your age, you know, <laughs> but there are individuals who actually predate me who wanted to see this day come to fruition. And so I'm greatly humbled and honored. And yes, I love this job. The city of Chicago truly is the greatest freaking city in the entire world. And the opportunity to serve in this capacity um, is incredibly humbling for my wife and I. And I, you know, I, I can't express how appreciative I am of um, people all over the city of Chicago who have come together and continue to ask me, what can I do or what can we do to help? Mm. It's an incredible testament to the aspirations of the people of Chicago, but more importantly, um, it's an incredible testament to the organizing that has taken place over the course of decades um, to finally see our values on full display in the people of Chicago choosing our values over the status quo. So absolutely, I'm enjoying every bit of it. All right. Um, well, since you mentioned the movement that got you here, I'll start with that. Uh, I basically, my journalism and my podcasting is uh, on lefty Chicago. So that's, I, I always say I live in lefty land. And uh, lefty land has a whole agenda that it's been pushing. And there was like more and more, as the years went by, more and more people started pushing it. But way back when, there was only a few, few people pushing it. Uh, and for them, your election was like the culminating moment. Uh, you know, the old lefties were like, oh, Harold. The young lefties didn't have anybody. And uh, so now this was a culminating moment. They have a whole list of things that they want you to do. They have a whole list of goals and aspirations that they've been pushing for for 20 years. You're now the mayor of the city of Chicago. It's not just Ben Jarofsky and Lefty Land. You got to deal with mainstream, what I call mainstream Chicago. You got to deal with the Cranes. You got to deal with the Tribune. You got to deal with the city council members who are centrist Democrats, ROM Democrats, if you will. And so how are you going to stay true to those lefties that brought you in the office without scaring the hell out of mainstream Chicago? Well, let me just say this, that a black man that comes out of the working class movement who demonstrates what I believe one of the greatest acts or powerful displays of power is the act of love, that will always be threatening to some people. So there's, there's really not too much else I can do. Like being black and progressive and having a clear view of the world through the lens of working class people, low income and poor people, that will always be uh, a threatening to, to, to a number of people. As far as, you know, just satisfying the interests and the needs of everyone, it's something that I wholeheartedly believe in, and that's bringing people together. Because I'm not intimidated by those who oppose me. Even if I'm bothered by their perspective, I'm not intimidated by them. And so the way you keep the interests satisfied is that you make sure that seats are available for everyone at the table. Now, it doesn't mean that you having a seat at the table means you're going to have an outsized voiced voice um, as we address the critical issues that we have been facing for a very long time. The last thing that I'll say is this. We've tried it the other way. 
for a long time, and I, I say the ubiquitous we, right? Chicago has tried it the other way for a very long time, and it's gotten us nowhere. In fact, the city of Chicago um, has experienced a great deal of stratification, whether it's in our public school system, how transportation works, healthcare works, housing, particularly public housing and affordable housing. The way forward cannot be the way that has been utilized up until this point that have left many families in desperate need of, of, of everything. And so making sure that people are aware that our values were on full display, where millions of dollars were poured into an operation to disrupt our values, and we won. And so sometimes you might have to remind people, not only have their ways been a failure, the city of Chicago made a very clear choice. My values, I did not shy away from them. I have not moved away from them in my first 15 weeks in office. And I'm not going to move away from them because it's who I am and it's what I believe in. And I appreciate the movement that has made this moment possible. But understand that as mayor of the city of Chicago, be very clear that my convictions go well beyond the interest of, of, of movement, that I am deeply unapologetically tethered to my faith, and that the, the, the liberation, particularly black liberation theology, that helped birth my politics, that is what is on display. And the people who are attached to that ideology get to have more seats at the table. Hell, they get to have seats at the table for a very long time. We weren't even permitted to be in the rooms. We had to fight, take a rest, and protest, starve ourselves just to be heard. Under a Johnson administration, the people who are responsible for this moment that elected me to become the 57th mayor of the city of Chicago, those values will always be the guiding principles that ultimately help dictate how we're going to govern to build a better, stronger, and a much safer Chicago. Before I turn it over to my first question, I just as a follow-up, have you reassure, found yourself having to reassure like centrist aldermen that they shouldn't be scared of you? Have you ever had private conversations where you used, where you talked the way you just talked, and then you had to explain to uh, one of your colleagues in the city council? Yeah, please don't mention a name. Because he used to the you had to explain, to, and then he called himself. That's the Holy Spirit working in you right now. I did have like three or four names I was going to rattle off. I know you did. Uh, I know you did. They're, they're, uh, have you had? <laughs> I actually think Nick Spasato could handle it, okay? He, he was not the one I was thinking of. Someone else downtown will ever get a little nervous. But, but sure, sure, I've had to have conversations with, with alders who want to, here's what they want. They want to make sure that they're not being iced or X'd out. The number of individuals that have chair that are chairs mm -hmm. who did not support my candidacy is indication that I'm not playing by the old style of politics, that we've actually provided seats at the table for individuals who openly opposed our movement. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so there's not too most there's not too much else I can do to assure people that I'm literally bringing people together outside of actually demonstrating that everyone has an opportunity to sit at the table. Mm. There's more than enough room for everyone in this city. All right. All right. I think those sentiments, nobody would have any objection to that. I want to get into some weeds. So 
you've gotten some flack in these 100 days of Brandon Johnson reviews about unfilled top-level cabinet positions, um, jobs that are you're taking longer than expected to find the right candidates to lead these city departments. Um, there are certain jobs in the city that are in your direct authority to decide who's going to have this job or this job with city government. But I want to talk about the people lower down, the city workers, people who are the rank and file of our, of our city government, people who work for the depart various city departments, you know, the people who apply for jobs through the main online HR system. So my sources within city government, what I'm hearing is that it can take like 12 months to fill a job, to fill a vacancy. The city has hundreds of vacancies across its departments. Uh, and right now, like last night when I checked the, the, the city website, the kind of main, you know, apply for a job with the city of Chicago, there's 59 job postings. There's 19 of them are in the law department when I know for a fact there's, there's over 100 vacant positions of just rank and file lawyers. Uh, same goes for, you know, housing, streets and sand, police department, whatever, what, what have you. So what do you plan to do about this problem, about how complicated and how long the process is to do the basic work of filling a job with the city? That's an excellent question. And vacancies, particularly in government, are widespread at every single level of government. I experienced this before I became um, mayor of the city of Chicago. You know, the Cook County government, a similar challenge. But let me just acknowledge a couple of things first. Government as it is today um, has to do a better job at innovating these positions to be far more attractive to the talent that is available in the city of Chicago. Um, let's just take one example. You mentioned attorneys that work for our law department. I don't believe anyone expects to get rich well, at least not progressives. We don't expect to get rich in government. Now, I don't know if that's the case for everyone. Um, some people have gotten rich, a handful of people. Um, however, in order to be able to attract, especially the modern-day worker, we have to be far more flexible and nimble. And that's everything from you know, being supportive of young attorneys who want a, a real opportunity to get courtroom experience while also having some flexibility to help to make sure that they're available for their families. And that, that's a real dynamic. Like the ability to work from home? Well, that could be one component of it. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be limited to that. This is what I mean, that the moment we find something that we think will be more palatable to workers, we begin to lock ourselves into that dynamic. It may not just be simply remote or working for home, from home. There are a host of other forms of flexibility, whether it's child care, um, individuals being, being able to have child care um, on site of the work site, right? So there are a number of things. Now, so that's, that's the first dynamic. The second dynamic is absolutely these systems um, are, um, they, they lack flexibility. And so my effort is to undo um, a system that has had a lot of rigidity for a very long time um, and being able to streamline the process so that we can move with some level of expedition. Now, here's the, the challenge, though. If I could, there were a number of political leaders who saw government as a, a place to reward their friends. And as a result of that, there's, there was a significant pushback, quite frankly, from liberals 
who wanted to make sure that there was a healthier process that ensured that these positions weren't simply going to be filled by just relatives. And so here's where the, the, the rub is, where you had an entire era that wanted the process that exists right now. The Shackman process. This is the process that Shackman okay, got us. You can use that term um, or, or that particular policy. While that particular formation did one thing, it undermined the black middle class in the city of Chicago. And this is what Harold Washington said when he had to sign that stuff. So this is not something that I am making up. This is not hyperbole, right? And so now we have to undo a system that an entire generation of liberals said that they wanted, and then they're asking me to hurry up and fix what they caused as the problem. <laughs> so, so here's well, the thing. I mean, so, but so are no, your hands what, tied? Is there something you No, can do my hands are not tied. Listen, what I'm saying is we just have to have full context of what we're dealing with, right? Because this is why when you mention even flexibility, I'm not just going to simply say working from home, that the moment we lock ourselves into a particular prescription of how you know, government can be more efficient or it can be more streamlined or it can move with, with a greater uh, velocity, that the moment we start to articulate one particular form, we end up creating a system that's going to be a problem for someone 40 years from now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like a problem such as somebody, take, it takes 12 months to hire someone to administer, let's say, homelessness prevention grants so, that the city so, already so, has so, money so, for. So challenges that I inherited is what you're speaking to. Look, I'm not intimidated by it. What I'm simply saying is that I'm committed to repairing a system, and this is what I've said to people who are working for my administration. The system that we inherited cannot be the system that we pass on. And so getting it right so that the 58th mayor of the city of Chicago is not back here, you know, giving a whole book study about how we created a system that worked for that particular moment, but it did not set us up for long-term sustainability. The benefit, though, quite frankly, of having um, studied and experienced and even listened to individuals who've been there before, we actually get to get it right. Now, it doesn't mean we're always going to get it right, but we're certainly not, gonna, not going to repeat the, 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 the mistakes of the past. And, and I, and I want to be careful when I say mistakes because I don't want it to come across as if someone messed up. At the time, it made sense. And so what our work is, as the modern-day progressive voice, we have to set up systems that work 100 years from now. That's the goal. This, this is not something that I believe is just theoretical. Is there something that comes to your mind as like a step one? Like this hiring, this, this hiring process is so cumbersome, and it takes so long to fill positions that are budgeted for, that there's plenty of qualified candidates for. There's, there, the money is there, and people want these jobs but it's so hard and complicated to get these positions filled. Like, is there anything that now, 100 days in, that you see that, like, I want, this is the first thing we got to sink our teeth into? Yes. And perhaps I need to articulate it a little clearer. Understanding what's wrong is the first step, is what I'm saying. That if you're just asking me to just do something, that's what previous administrations have done. That's been the failure of Chicago. That you cannot, it's, it's, it's like any dynamic, Without understanding the full context of what's wrong, whatever you produce in 100 days, there's no way. There is no way that a system of failure for the last how many years would it be responsible or appropriate to try to solve that within the first 100 days? Because if I could do that, I'm going to 
I'm going to declare myself a Marvel hero. <laughs> no, seriously, and I think there's probably a lot more money to be made yeah. as, you know, Luke Cage. Uh, well, before I move on to the next topic, I just want to uh, say something in defense of white liberals. Uh, <laughs> well, well, hold on a second. It's I never not, said white liberals. Hold on a second. Because you got people. But, but if you want to specifically talk about white liberals, you're more than welcome. Okay. I just want the record to reflect yeah, I said liberals. That is correct. But I'm now defending white liberals because they were the ones behind the Shackman uh, lawsuits. The initial, uh, uh, the initial motivation for all those Shackman cases, and I want to do a history lesson, uh, Mayor. Um, God, calling you mayor is deep, man. <laughs> uh, but the initial impetus for that was to protect city workers because city workers are being coerced to go door to door for do political work for Mayor Daly, Daddy Daly, uh, Old Man Daly, R.J. Daly, not R.M. Daly youngsters. So uh, it was to protect city workers and also to protect Michael Shackman and independent uh, candidates like himself who are trying to run in the force of a patronage army. I do believe that turned into, this is why I said, I added the word white to it, like this crusade, this weird crusade coming out of the north side. Uh, and I saw it when Forrest Claypool ran against John Stroger. Uh, like, we got to get rid of patronage. We got to get rid of these jobs. And we've seen privatization come through with the daily years and we're dealing right now with our, in my humble opinion, with our health department. Like, we faced COVID with uh, a health department that was really undermanned, and now we're going to probably have another surge coming up. So that's no, the that, That's fair. Look, this is what I'm saying, and that I didn't mean to just blow past that. I'm saying that there were individuals at the time that were well intent, and thank you for providing the full context there. I understand it. Obviously, in retrospect, we do recognize the, the motivation behind it, and working to solve an HR component and just say, if we just simply shift personnel or um, you know figure out a particular dynamic that can speed the process along, um, to do that at this point, um, I don't know if it gets at what we're trying to, to fix. And what we're ultimately trying to, to fix is not just being able to hire people faster. This is why I'm saying that part of it is to make sure that we are attracting and making the jobs available for the 21st century worker so that they ultimately can be protected. Once they're hired faster, if we're not providing conditions that ultimately protect them and or provide them with the type of positioning that allows them to be all that we are asking workers to be today, then, then we're, we're not looking at it in, in, with its full breath, and we can find ourselves... Um, in a similar dynamic in years to come. And that's what we're working to avoid. All right. Uh, since we're in uh, employment and HR, I'll skip the question I was going to ask and go to a different question that I was going to ask later. That's very confusing. Um, it's the Arwadi question. And I'm really uh, going to tread carefully here uh, because uh, I may have been callous, uh, Mayor, on my podcast when I had uh, Alderman uh, Ramirez Rosa on. You may have been. <laughs> Uh, I like the fact that you're creating a little bit of doubt that perhaps you weren't at any moment in your 30-year career. 40. 40 years. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my god. Thank gosh. you for cutting me, making yeah, me younger I mean, than I, I am. I uh, It's hard work. Um, so I was very, I'm a lefty, so I was very dismissive. And I'm like, so my only problem with uh, Mayor Johnson and Arwadi is that he didn't fire day one. 
and that's how lefties view it. And um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners who said I was callous and uh, I didn't show a proper amount of appreciation for Dr. Awadi. So I'm really, I am sincerely trying to not be so uh, callous. Um, (laughs) But uh, I I noticed a contrast. I heard this from a source who remained uh, um, unidentified, that James Francic is still in the employee of the city, representing the city in negotiations with the police department. That blew my mind. Ladies and gentlemen, James Francis was a lawyer, a personal lawyer for the city. He was fighting against the union. Karen Lewis, may she rest in peace, would tell the funniest stories about Francis, how she made fun of him and teased him, and you know this, uh, from those negotiations. And I'm like, if anyone... And he went public endorsing... <laughs> with the dumbest essay I've ever read... Uh, I wasn't going to be callous, was I? Endorsing uh, Paul. I like Ballas. how you're working through your salvation right now. Like you, you shouldn't feel what it feels like up here. Ben Jarofsky is really trying hard to be saved and sanctified. I appreciate that for a lefty. That's actually impressive. So, come on, you kept Francis, okay, and got rid of Arwadi. All right, so help me with this one now. Um, why keep Francis? Why get rid of Awadi? Well, look, for me, there's criteria for my form of leadership. And having competence as well as a desire to be collaborative, um, those are two very important dynamics. Now, the third one is to be compassionate, right? And certainly the work that Francis has done over the course of, well, a career that spans as long as yours, right? Um, Longer. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that his understanding of contracts and negotiations, look, he gets that aspect of it. Now, let me just be very clear. I set the vision. I set the perspective for how we will treat workers, And as long as everyone is clear about the fact that the movement that elected me, Mm -hmm. that I get to carry out that perspective and vision for the world, if individuals are prepared and willing to do that, um, they have an opportunity to work for my administration. Look, Chief Snelling is a perfect example of this. And I fully expect him to be confirmed by the city council. When have you ever heard a police officer, particularly a leader in his capacity, talk about treatment, not trauma. Now, maybe that's not a big deal to most people, but for those of us who believe that we need an alternative, I shouldn't even call it an alternative, we need a better way to respond to mental health crises and to have a person who was ultimately prepared to be the superintendent to say, I agree with the movement, has that ever happened? Have you ever heard someone who was positioned to be a superintendent of police say the movement is right? And so as long as people are clear mm-hmm. that this is the mission and the vision and they're prepared to administer that, then they have an opportunity. Look, as I said repeatedly, um, you know, my decision to move beyond um, our, our public health commissioner here in Chicago was a personnel decision that I believe ought to always remain private. That, that, that to discuss 
a personnel decision, particularly around someone be, being fired, um, that's against my, my belief system. That I, don't, I actually find that to be immoral, quite frankly. And so whatever someone else does, that's on them. I, I am not going to, because the moment you ask me to tell you why, it automatically requires me to be critical. And I'm not going to be critical of a public servant in public. That's the type of politics that people want to turn away from. I'm not going to have a back and forth about a decision around personnel that is really a private dynamic. That's how I was raised, Ben. You know, there's certain dynamics where you just don't air that out. It's not appropriate. Uh, I... This, this, is, this, this is not the answer we were expecting, but I, I want to just put this on the table, and you can feel free to maintain your line about not commenting any further on it. But as we were watching the conversation around this decision, there were most of the conversation was people asking, why would he make this decision? She got the city through COVID. Or there would be commentary saying, well, of course he made his decision because he's really just a puppet of the teacher's union and she wasn't you know, on the side of the teacher's union in some of the reopening decisions. And so it's about that. It's about the teacher's union and actually you, know, you being just like Stacey Davis Gates inside you like a you know, bl- men in black type situation. That's like, that's, that, those are the two things, those are the two types of commentary uh, I heard uh, about this decision. But nobody really was talking about what seemed to me really important uh, when considering what Dr. Arwadi was standing for. Uh, One of those things was her opposition to nonprofit workers unionizing, and the other thing was her opposition to mental health clinic reopening, which was a central plank of of your campaign. So did those two positions of hers have anything to do with this decision, or... Everyone knows that I'm committed to treatment, not trauma. And as I said before, individuals who are prepared to carry out our mission and vision that I was elected to to carry out, those are the individuals that will have place in my administration. And perhaps things should go without saying. But as far as this, this, this dynamic that a black man executive can't make decisions on his own, I, I, again, I... I I can't speak to someone else's rationale on whether or not the same forces that did not believe that I can manage a budget, the same forces that believed that I could not handle large systems of care, the same forces that did not believe that I could bring the city council together, the same forces that believed that I, can't, that I could not win, you think I'm going to suddenly be surprised <laughs> or get upset because now all of a sudden, oh my goodness, the world is oppositional to a black man on the left who leads with love, and that the only rationale that could be possible for any of my decisions is that somehow a black man is being controlled, well, let me just offer news for the city of Chicago. The people of Chicago elected me as mayor. And if anybody has a problem with it, come see me in four years. Just want to enter a forgotten name here. I'm playing this role of old guy remembering things. Uh, Eddie Johnson, give him credit for this, stood with uh, Father Flager and Jesse Jackson when uh, there was a march. And so it's not exactly treatment, not drama, but he did do that. So I just. Well, you also have right wing conservatives quoting Dr. Keene on, on, on his birthday. 
Look, and I'm not, what I'm saying is, look, this is the, the challenge. This is no disrespect to folks who marched with us during what was obvious, a need to call out these systems of oppression. What I'm saying is, when things are no longer the, the hot political topic in that moment, where will you be in those moments? And what I'm saying is that Chief Snelling could break away from that particular position if he so chose to, because the world has already provided an escape route or a trap door for, for law enforcement to do it. And he is not doing that. And what I'm saying is that this is another example of yet another black man who was raised in Inglewood, the son of Inglewood, is now in a position to help us build a better, stronger, safer Chicago with community safety as part of its platform. The fact that for the first time in the history of Chicago, we have a deputy mayor committed, a deputy mayor committed to community safety, bringing all resources together to approach this very complex dynamic in a very full force way, that really should speak volumes to the strength of the movement. That's what I'm trying to get at, you all, is that if, if I wanted to behave like previous administrations and just show up to ribbon cuttings, make announcements, have unfunded mandates, make these knee-jerk reactions within the first 100 days so people can feel good about themselves, or we can actually do what those who made my election possible 40 years ago, fulfill that mission in a real way so that 100 years from now, the next Ben Jarafsky is looking back on this moment and saying, thank God there was a generation that, that, that did not flinch, that we believed in public accommodations, that we protect the rights of workers, and we did it in a way that was equitable, and yes, we challenged corporations to put more skin in the game, and we don't apologize for it. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I believe this moment is unique because there's so much at stake in this moment, and there are many individuals who are very much committed to transforming uh, the, the city. And there are some who want the old way and the old style of governance to play out in the public so that they can sell publications, not at, not at the expense of the people who need us to actually build a better, stronger, safer Chicago together. I'm not going to tolerate it. That's not who I am. We're going to bring people together, black, brown, white, Asian, young, old, no matter who you love, what neighborhood you live in, you get to have a better, stronger, safer Chicago. Yeah, so this, I think... like two uh, more questions there. Yeah, look over here. Uh, No, I want to bring this back to actually... um, Something you talked about when we had you on the show right before the pandemic, uh, back in March of 2020, we had the first Tuesdays with you and Carlos Ramirez Rosa at the hideout. And there's something you said during that show that I want to get back to, which is you identified, and at the time you were a Cook County commissioner, you weren't in any direct position to do anything about this issue. But you said at the time that one of the main problems facing the city of Chicago is the total decimation of the ranks of black teachers in our public school system. So now we fast forward three years, three and a half years. You're now sitting in the mayor's seat in charge of the city of Chicago. Are you thinking about this problem and a solution to it? I am. I am. You know, let me just first say that we have 2,000 more teachers and school staff, teachers in particular, 2,000 more teachers now than we had in 2020. And so there has been an uptick in the number of teachers we've been able to hire. And that had everything to do with what we were organizing and pushing for at that time. As far as being able to attract black 
educators. Um, there are three dynamics. One, make sure that we create a real pathway for our young people to experience community college as well as pushing historically black colleges and universities. This last weekend, we had the Chicago Football Classic. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars over the course of, of, of 25 years now where we've invested in black students in particular going to HBCUs. Why is that important? Because half of um, our black educators around the country are, are educated in HBCUs. So, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, there is a strong program. It's called um, a Grow Your Own. And the Grow Your Own model is designed to help individuals who are already in the education profession to experience a pathway in an affordable way to become an educator. Um, and so pushing more resources there, making sure that we have partners in the General Assembly to help appropriate and fund um, those dynamics. Here's the third thing, um, to really invest in professional development because it's also about retention. One of the top reasons why black educators leave the profession, it's not even pay, it's actually teacher autonomy. Black educators in particular who have a degree of cultural competency that quite frankly is just intuitive, when you constrain a black educator, particularly those who are teaching black children or children, children of color, um, that becomes very frustrating. It's, we don't create the type of nimbleness that we need in the profession. And so those are three areas that, that I'm gonna concentrate my work on. And I'm grateful to have someone like Jen Johnson, who is our deputy uh, mayor um, that is dedicated to education and health and human services. So this well, is top of mind. Well, what does it mean to loosen some of those constraints? Like well, on well I mean, I'm, okay, on a practical level, and thank you for, for making sure that I'm being absolutely clear. Um, we place too much emphasis on the standardization of education. So that when a child or children are in front of black educators in particular, if the only design and model for a child's excellence is based upon a standardization that is rooted in eugenics, which of course is um, you know, the, 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 the case to ultimately try to determine the inferiority of black people, um, that loosening um, that dynamic so that rural autonomy uh, could be the prevailing form of educating, that's just one example. Uh, totally shifting gears here, something uh, that's been on my mind a lot lately. I did a whole show about this, uh, Mayor. This Trump. is always interesting. When you just say <laughs> stuff that's been on your mind for a lot lately, I'm thinking, oh, my yeah, goodness, no. what is this going to be about? I'm, I'm not going to ask you about the Bears. Okay, okay. okay. Right. Uh, although that's on my mind a lot. Uh, <clears throat> as I push for that South side stadium. I'm just going to put that in your head. South side stadium. Okay. Uh, we had a no that. sports question. Oh, agreement. right. No sports question. Justin Fields. Go Bears. All right. Um, so we'd spent a lot of time on my podcast talking about asylum seekers coming to Chicago, 13,500 coming by the buses that had been sent up by uh, Governor Abbott, coming by airplane, uh, dropped off at O'Hare City. Uh, it's viewed on a regular basis as a crisis. And I know this is the old lefty of me talking, Mayor Johnson. I'm like, why is this a crisis? But when Amazon wanted to come here with 5,000 workers that was going to cost the taxpayers of the city of Chicago 
billions of dollars and ramen around and were giving them prize land all over the city where they wanted. That was seen as an opportunity. So I keep asking this question of the guests who come on my show. Why do we see this as a crisis and not an opportunity? So my question to you is, do you see it as a crisis, uh, which seems to be the prevailing view in the city of Chicago, or do you think this is an opportunity uh, that could really help build and develop Chicago? Go. It's a good question. I've I've often have said this that I've been reluctant to call it a crisis, and um, typically I'll describe it as a humanitarian endeavor. Um, and because this is this is this is the reality, you all. I mean, this is what it is. There is a global shift of population. I mean, this is all over the globe, and this is not something that is new historically. It's obviously far more um, apparent as well as concentrated now. But, you know, this, this is an experience that the globe has gone through before. I do see it as an opportunity for us to do a few things. One, um, really challenge our, our federal government to look at its foreign policy. You know, one of the things that I do appreciate about the first black first lady in the history of the city of Chicago uh, my wife has spent some time in Colombia and South America. This was 20 years ago where the very movement that we are connected to, the movement that my wife experienced in Colombia, those very movement individuals are now running government much like us. And so the vice president, for instance, of, of, of Colombia, you know, is equivalent to basically older woman Jeanette Taylor, uh, led protests in villages that surrounded the capital and led marches um, as the privatization of mining was taking place. These were the so-called government positions that black Colombians, Afro-Colombians in particular, um, um, those were the jobs that sustained their local economy. And so fast forward um, to the type of disruption that is taking place all over the globe, now you have a significant movement shift, right? So it's just important that we recognize that whether it was the war or uh, on drugs, uh, Plan Colombia. You should take a look at that particular plan, the so-called war on drugs and terrorism um, that ultimately just terrorized the villages where Afro-Colombians in particular lived. And so now those individuals are now pushing back against the system that oppressed them. And so when I think about it in the context, I always have the global perspective of the diaspora. Now, as far as here in the city of Chicago, um, when I, since the DNC announcement, the, the, the escalation of buses um, have been tremendous, right? And so I want folks to be very clear that this is a direct response from, you know, the, the governors, particularly in, in these red states, that are really trying to call attention to our values. And so you understand the framing of that, that I do see it as an opportunity. But here's the dynamic. I know what I inherited when I, when I was sworn in. And we have seen, what is it now, and growing. There's four buses coming tomorrow. Um, 115, 120 buses that have arrived since the DNC announcement. Uh, we have stood up 18 shelters just in these first 15 weeks. We have literally brought together every single level of government, from the federal, the state, the county government, to really begin to address this humanitarian endeavor. Cook County government providing healthcare services. Again, that number, of course, is continuing to grow. Working with the state, Governor Pritzker, to make sure that we have resources available to stand up these shelters. 
Look, we have a lot of work to do. The last thing that I'll say around this dynamic, it is an opportunity, but we also have to be very clear that for a long time in this city, we've ignored what has been the norm in this city of the displacement and the disruption of black existence. And that individuals who are feeling away about this particular dynamic, we have to really understand that. Let me give you one quick example. I know you're gonna ask for one. Uh, um, <laughs> when we were looking for facilities to house yeah. migrants, the closed schools, we, we, we said at the time that this was gonna be a disaster. Mm -hmm. And now there's a publication that has confirmed what we said years ago. When we've done an assessment on some of these closed schools, some of these schools probably held 500 to 1,000 kids at their, during the height of enrollment. Some of these buildings require 12 to $15 million to repair them. Yeah. And they're sitting in the middle of neighborhoods, particularly black neighborhoods, right? And so it's an it's a, it's a opportunity for us not just to provide space for those who wish to call Chicago home, but it's also an opportunity for us to actually undo the damage that was done in the very communities in which the migrants are actually being housed. Yeah. So the very space that has been undermined is the only space, I shouldn't say the only space, has been the primary space in which we have set up opportunities for these families to call home. So there's a lot of work to be done here. Don't misunderstand me. You, there'll be some, there's gonna be some more, um, I'm rolling out you know, a, a stronger uh, presentation uh, this week, in fact, around our ultimate plan um, to address this humanitarian endeavor. Does it include lobbying the federal government to change the laws around how fast it takes to work per to get a work permit to get folks in a position where they're able to work and sustain themselves and 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 access more more of this country it does and you know i also just want to make sure that i'm emphasizing that every single level of government has has responded to my push to collaborate and bring people together but i also just want to highlight and lift up the fact that much like when I talk about the full force of government, that's all of our sister agencies, including our departments, have to participate in building a better, stronger, safer Chicago, the same dynamic applies to the federal government, whether it's housing, whether it's um, uh, food, whether it's education, all of these different entities within the federal government have a role to play to provide the type of opportunities for these families, while at the same time expanding opportunities for those who have desired the federal government in particular to place more value into the very communities that, quite frankly, hold down the Democratic Party. Oh, no. And listen, I hear you, and what Maya's saying is true. Uh, and the Democrats want to come to Chicago in 2024 to have a big party. And I understand you're the mayor now, so you have to join all the parties. So I'm not going to give you any grief about that. Uh, and you even have to meet with former mayors and say nice things about them. And I'm not going to give you grief about that. I've already given you enough grief about that. Uh, so, yes. Uh, but come on, Democrats. This is me speaking. Come on, Debbie. You want to come to Chicago, you have a party. You want the streets paved. You want the flowers put out, just like in 1996. Kick in some money to help us resettle uh, asylum seekers. It's ridiculous. They want to come to Chicago, Mayor Johnson, and have a party in the city of Chicago and anoint Joe Biden to run for, uh, to run for re-election. But they don't want to spend some money 
uh, trying to settle people in Chicago. And as you just pointed out, the people are bringing bus terror as a political tool by the Republican Party, by MAGA, to try to make the Democrats look bad. To under You know they're going to bring even more buses during that Democratic convention. So no, look, Ben, you're spot on. You won't, you won't get an argument from me. You know, I, I, as I've said, that since the DNC was announced right after I won, so I, you know, I had a little something to do with that, um, that you, you, you have seen this spike, right? And I just want people to also be clear of, of why we have to do this, though. If we do not put together the type of infrastructure to create a real welcoming space, not just for the city of Chicago, but for the state of Illinois, because we are a welcoming state, um, that if we don't put that structure together, the type of chaos that will take place um, would be quite severe because these individuals and these families are coming. Mm -hmm. And you know what we inherited and what we've done and what we're going to do and why we're going to do it, um, those are the questions that all of us get to, 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 to raise and also come up with viable solutions to address it. And my administration has been very much um, moving with urgency um, to remove families out of police stations, again, standing up more shelters within the last 15 weeks than we had all together over the course of the year prior to me becoming uh, mayor while also making sure that, um, you know, we're doing it in a way that's um, thoughtful and one that, of course, uh, has, um, you know, financial prudence as well. Uh, so in the on the topic of, you know, settling people more, more permanently, it's, it's a housing question, basically. And, and on the subject of housing, this, this is something that um, uh, I'd like to ask about having written about housing issues in the city for 10 years now, um, how can the city do a better job protecting renters from the kind of uh, terrible conditions that some folks live in, in, in private, unsubsidized rental housing in the city? Housing in working-class neighborhoods, in old, in old buildings, not new construction. Um, housing that's often very expensive, despite it being in working-class neighborhoods. Um, what can the city do to, to protect folks better? Um, look, thank you for your work you know, around housing and all the advocates that have been pushing for affordable housing, public housing, and a pathway to home ownership. Let me just first acknowledge that within our first 100 days, we have put together um, you know, a reasonable uh, presentation to ultimately bring Chicago home securing 100 million new dollars um, to create a pathway to housing. And that's something that, you know, it's a remarkable testament to our movement because, look, it sat dormant for how many years before it even uh, received um, any attention. As far as what exists now, this goes back to your initial question or one of your initial questions around filling vacancies with um, inspectors that can better monitor the conditions that exist. And then, of course, through that work, holding those landlords accountable, including making sure that public housing 
um, is living up to a standard um, that we are ultimately going to hold private entities responsible for as well. And so this is something that I've heard throughout the campaign trail where especially our seniors are living in buildings and conditions um, that are not palatable for, for anyone, quite frankly. And that's going to, that is going to require us to have the right personnel in place um, to hold our agency as well as uh, private um, entities accountable. And what that looks like in terms of legislatively, that's something that I'm willing to explore. Um, you know, I'm not someone who necessarily always or will advocate um, for fines and fees. However, there are ways that we have seen around the country where there are progressive forms or ways in which, you know, we can create a standard. And if people miss those standards, um, that there are, um, there's an accountability mechanism in place to hold them um, true to the expectations that we will establish. Well, if it's not fines and fees, how do you hold a private landlord accountable? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm not saying that I wouldn't. I'm just saying that that's not something that I will automatically just turn to, but that is a dynamic that I believe requires um, the, the full scope of city council. Uh, and the only reason why I'm articulating that is because there is a different standard that I'm held to. There is. And, and that's, that's not something that I'm mad at. That that's just the reality. That's not, I'm not the first, you know, uh, person of color, particularly black man, that will be held to a different standard than other administrations. And so it's incumbent upon me to understand that and to make sure that I'm intentional about bringing people together. Because what I don't want is a dynamic where we are giving um, those who would naturally oppose us reason to justify why we can't do something because that person there, that mayor, that man is doing this to us. Because that is part of the narrative. Look, you all, you all read the press. I don't. Um, you know, but you all look at these dynamics. You all know how, how, how there's been a certain particular coverage of me. Right? Think about it. You know, there's coverage of me being slow. Right? Um, unconscionable. You know, um, why is he overly cautious? These are dynamics, these are microaggressions that if you don't have the lens of, of those who have lived through these experiences, you would just miss it. You, you, you would, because the same, some of the folks who would call me slow, do you understand what that term means, particularly in the black community? And so you have these forces <laughs> that, 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 that perpetuate a particular view of blackness. And, and the reason why I, 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 I put on the, on the table fines and fees is because I recognize that that is one form in which we can hold people accountable. And the reason why I say I'm reluctant to just lead with that is because, again, I do not want anyone to use an excuse of why we need to do something right is because of him. He did that to us. It's not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to give people willingly um, that type of um, narrative around me. But I also need you all's help to call it out. Quite frankly, this is where I need my allies, particularly my white allies, if I could. That they're, they're, it's, it's not enough to disrupt the progressive movement. It's to destroy what black liberation means to all of us. I mean, keep in mind, the other day ago, August 30th, the birthday of Chairman Fred Hampton Sr., who we all know 
What happened? And a black mayor said, we're going to declare Chairman Fred Hampton Day in the city of Chicago. And who wrote about it? The Chicago Defender. Mm. However, when I make personnel decisions, everybody wants to write about personnel decisions. <laughs> but when we're talking about righting the wrongs of the past, somehow that's not newsworthy. Yeah. I need your help. Yeah. I do. Look, ben Jurasky. Ben, <laughs> ben and I are not in a position to answer for why you might be getting coverage of this or not that. No, I'm not saying, but hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to answer for it. I'm saying when you see it, you do get to call it out. No, it, okay. Because that's what allyship is. Listen, I am not... I am a heterosexual man, but I get to ally with trans black women. And so what I'm saying is if you're asking me to be an ally for every group that exists in this city that have experienced marginalization, I am literally saying out loud that black folks need allies too. That's all I'm saying. Look, I don't know how we got from the question of what you're going to do about slum housing in the city to this. Well, but, the, here's, I, here's I, how we, but here's look, how we I, got I here, no though. No, 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 I know you don't, but here's how we got here, though, is because this notion around how we administer government, it's why I'm intentional about collaborating with people. That's how we got here. And that in my effort to bring people together, you get dogged for being deliberative and thoughtful. That the only way in which you can characterize me bringing people together is to be in slow? That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's important that we understand the full scope of what we have to accomplish, y'all. Look, our struggles, quite frankly, are very much aligned. They really are. But be very clear that when we appointed and situated black leaders to lead up finance, budget, Rules, vice mayor, there are more black aldermen in leadership positions than we've seen in a long time. And somehow there are still more brown leaders in, in leadership positions than we've ever had as well. So in other words, you can actually build a better, stronger, safer Chicago through the lens of black liberation without excluding people. That's how we got here. I just want people to understand how your mayor thinks when I show up to work every day. Mm. If it was just as simple of me clocking in and then looking at some documents and making it a decision, then heck, anybody could have done that job. But, but to make sure that the people of Chicago, I wanted to be perfectly clear. This is who you voted for. And that bringing the people of Chicago together requires all of us to call out the systemic racism and challenges that exist. Don't leave it up to black people to call out white supremacy. I, I think it's time for the lightning round. Wait. wait. We, Ronnie, I was about to launch into something incredible. That's <laughs> a cute you're baby, a picture Ronnie. Of baby? <laughs> All right. Oh, is that what he's saying? It's, it's, it's time for the lightning round, Ben. Oh, okay. All right. I will not launch into whatever I was going to. I just wanted you to know I was censored by Ronnie, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love you, Ronnie. Uh, boy, you were really going to miss what I was going to say. I'm just going to say, boy, I was about to say something. Well, that means you have to have me back. <laughs> yes, I will okay. have you back. You. Okay. Uh, all right, so we had a <laughs> um, definitely have you back uh, uh, on my podcast. You haven't been on my podcast since you were Cook County. No, since you were a mayoral candidate, my bad. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to close with a lightning round, and uh, Ronnie's just doing his job. So I love you, Ronnie. Uh, boy, did I bug Ronnie to get you on this stage. You have no idea. 
Um, so these basic lightning rounds are the, a lot of people uh, sent in questions they wanted to ask you. So do you want to go first? Mike, we got a whole bunch of, we're going to close it down to right. maybe four. Yeah. These, so these are based on questions that people sent us, okay. questions they had for you. Right. When are the mental health centers reopening? Yeah, that's number one. <laughs> yeah, so look, treatment, not trauma. Um, we've had hearings around treatment, not trauma. Passing that is the first step. Um, and um, I'm very much committed. Just know that I'm committed to reopening the mental health clinics. How many we can reopen within the first four years? Um, to be perfectly frank with you all, I mean, that's still to be determined. Um, there are real budgetary dynamics that we have to address, and I'm committed to doing that. Obviously, I'm very much committed to generating new revenue, um, to, to bring Chicago home, to plow the sidewalks, and, of course, to move towards you know, a more equitable, just form of how we treat the mental um, uh, uh, mental health in this city. So um, we're moving with, with, with expediency, but passing treatment, not trauma, um, is the initiation to, to, to that process of reopening our mental health clinics. Uh, and another question that came in, I'm doing this off the top of my head, uh, the number of murders is down. Uh, let's hope it goes down. It's still too high, obviously, in, in, uh, in Chicago. But uh, the number of, of armed robberies uh, is disturbingly high. Um, and obviously, you talked about this on the campaign trail, the need for more detectives to do investigations, et cetera, and so forth. What assurances can you give the people of the city of Chicago that you're working on this and that there's going to be some kind of concrete? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, this is, this is heavy. I mean, it, I mean there, this is a, a very heavy moment for the city of Chicago. And as much as that we're working hard to reduce shootings and uh, to reduce murders in the city, it's something that I do think about all the time. If this is the one thing, um, that the two things that keep me up um, when, I, when I'm not able to sleep well is public safety and, of course, the humanitarian endeavor. Um, but, yes, we are moving with a great deal of speed um, to hire more detectives. Um, I'm, you know, I believe that we're really close um, to, to getting 200 more detective, detectives in my first um, year. I mean, this is something that I believe that over the course of four years that we, you know, we purposed out to do. Um, but I've already, we've had two graduations, 50, 70, um, so we're already at 100 detectives, and uh, we're working now um, to create a more streamlined approach to your question earlier about how we can actually move with some more expediency to get more detectives. But the other dynamic is it's really going to take some coordination with state and federal government um, to help um, with these armed robberies as well as the carjackings. I mean, this is horrific. It's brutal. Um, it's frightening for the families who have gone through this. I've heard testimony um, repeatedly about this. And so having a coordinated um, response with all levels of government to help support, um, provide. And we've done this. I mean, look, I mean, there are, there are a string of these robberies where we have caught the culprits. And, you know, it's a, it's a very, very um, harsh dynamic because the number of, of these um, groups, I mean, these are young people. Yeah. When I say young people, I'm talking about under the age of 24, mm. right? And so there's some real dynamics there that we have to address as a city. Um, but it really requires some level of coordination that we're committed to doing and hiring more detectives. Hiring more detectives. All right. Any plans to shake up CTA leadership? <laughs> and we got that question yeah. more than just from these guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, as I said, the system that we inherited cannot be the system that we, that we pass along. And we have uh, a core team. Um, that is, that they're working overtime to fully vet all of our sister agencies as well as our departments. And 
as I said, collaborative, competent, and compassionate, um, that all of the individuals that are in place right now um, are being fully evaluated, and you, you can expect some decisions to be made um, soon. I, I, I thought it was important that we gave people at least three months um, to be able to provide us with some context of where they're going. And in the spirit of holding to that, um, I am looking forward to the recommendations that are going to be brought before me, along with the advocates. Look, there's no secret here that there have been a number of people um, who have been disappointed in, in how CTA um, has behaved. There's no secret there. Uh, but making sure that we're doing it um, in a thorough way that's fully vetted with the rubric that we are using to score you know, whether or not all of these positions that people are holding will be maintained, um, um, I'm committed to that process. And so we're looking at it very thoroughly. I, I assure you that. So I, I want to ask one last question in the spirit of reviewing your, your first 100 days in office. Um, so you come from a movement background, an organizing background. Um, and if today you were in a position to teach a group of grassroots organizers, people who were in your shoes 10 years ago, um, if you were going to impart some wisdom onto them based on what you've learned in your first 100 days being on the inside, on the other side of the door of power. What would you tell them? What, would you, what, what lesson would you impart to organizers who are out there trying to push you now? I don't, leave me alone. No, I'm, I'm teasing. No, I'm, I'm, no I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Look, <laughs> right, so, someone obviously disagrees there. But, but you know, look, I mean, that's, that's actually a really good question. And this is something, though, that I, I, I referenced earlier. One of, the, one of the clear critiques of the generation before us um, was that too many people who are part of the movement went into the administration. Is that, is that a fair critique? That, they're, they're, that, that, that the, sort of the outside of the, the third rail, as we described, um, just lost momentum. And so what I would, what I would impart is um, continue to knock doors and build capacity for the vision that we were elected on. Because there is this dynamic, and I'll just be perfectly vulnerable here. There is a dynamic that in this role, you get into your day-to-day. -day, I could see how someone who is not principled and, and doesn't possess the values that they may have ran on, how you can get lost in the day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. And so in order to just keep, not just, but in order to keep the momentum that elected me, continue to knock on doors, continue to build capacity, continue to bring in more voices that speak to the full force of what we need to do. And so if you are um, someone who is advocating for protective bike lanes, can we get you to organize with people who want to see more black educators? If you believe that You're we need... that if you come, if, they, if people come at you, if those two people come together... The bike lane people and the black educator organizers come to you together. They have a greater chance For to have your mental ear. health advocates. Because listen, there's not one dynamic that will give us the better, stronger, safer Chicago that we want. And so I just had a conversation with a, a corporate leader today, and they want to provide workforce development, health care, housing and build it around transportation so that they can actually get to the jobs in which they're trying to create. And so it really is gonna require that type of holistic approach, you all, because like the piecemealing of the things that we care about, I don't believe that that's transformational. 
Some will say, well, that's too much to take on at once. I'm saying take it all on at once. And we continue to build power even when there will be moments where there may be some limitations to what we can accomplish in a particular budget year. Look, yes, I'm saying make more noise and organize more people and do it in a holistic way because that's the approach that I'm taking. The full force of government was on display when we experienced flooding on the west side of Chicago. It was OEMC, Department of Transportation, Streets and Sanitation, Police, fire. Um, it was our community-based organizations, our movement spaces that went door to door. All of us participated in what ultimately led to FEMA coming in, providing support. I am working hard to model the example as an organizer from an executive office. And that's literally bringing all of our forces together. And that includes our philanthropic community, our corporate partners, just that gap between um, Chicago Public Schools dismissal and the park district's opening. We brought the full force of government. The fact that we have the Chicago Public Schools and the Chicago Teachers Union coming together for the first time in the history of the world where we're actually going to invest in um, um, special education and English language learners. I mean, these are components that did not happen prior to me getting here, and I'm not here without the movement. The full force of government, the full force of our organizing have to work collectively, collaboratively to build a better, stronger, safer Chicago. And in fact, that type of work is what I call, I've only said it once tonight, the soul of Chicago. <laughs> uh, so I just want to as you leave... Ronnie, I'm, he's going to get to leave now, uh, say that you proved me wrong tonight. So uh, I talked to a few people before the show, and I predicted, I'm looking at one of the people I talked to, that you would show up late and you would leave early. And you showed up early and you left late. So thank you very much, Mayor Johnson, okay? Thank you. Give it up for Mayor Johnson.